Hello and welcome to the Palliative Care Journal Watch podcast by Pallium Canada for January 2024, where our panel of palliative care experts keep you informed of the latest peer-reviewed palliative care literature. Our hosts, Dr. Jose Pereira and Dr. Ainaran Sinaraja, join us for the 11th episode of the Palliative Care Journal Watch. If you'd like to access accompanying slides and links to the articles discussed in today's podcast, visit the link in the episode notes. This podcast is a collaboration between Pallium Canada and the Divisions of Palliative Care at Queen's University and McMaster University. It is a part of the Palliative Care ECHO Project, which aims to support continuous professional development among healthcare providers across Canada who care for patients with life-limiting illness. The Palliative Care ECHO Project is supported by financial contributions from Health Canada. However, the views expressed in today's episode do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. With no further ado, it's time for the Journal Watch. Hi everyone and uh, welcome to this, the first episode of 2024 of our Pad of Care Journal Watch. In fact, I think this is the 11th episode. So we're beyond the 10 and we're growing and we're into the teenage years, I think. I'm Dr. Jose Pereira. I am a professor of Pad of Care at McMaster University and also a the scientific advisor at Pallium Canada. And today hosting this session is my colleague, Dr. Aingaran Sinaraja. Our panelists today are Dr. Anna Voke and Dr. Janice Miyasaki, and they're both coming to us from Alberta. The Journal Watch is about trying to keep up to date uh, with the latest peer-reviewed palliative care literature. So what we've done is we've collected a group of individuals, colleagues from across the country, McMaster University, Queen's University, McGill, the University of Toronto, University of Manitoba, University of Calgary, University of Alberta, and also some colleagues in Israel at the Hadassah Hebrew University. We've got these teams across these different universities, and we monitor the different journals. And when we find an article that we think, ah, this is interesting because this will change the way we think about a topic, we bring this to the attention of an editorial board, and there are four of us on the editorial board. And it is Dr. Eingeron, Dr. Leonie Herx, who usually hosts this with me, but now we're going to be taking turns. It's also Dr. Sharon Watanabe from Alberta and myself. The Palliative Care Echo Project, which brings you the Journal Watch, is funded by Health Canada. And um, just so you know, the Echo Project is a five-year national initiative that cultivates communities of practices and establishes continuous professional development among healthcare providers across Canada. And it is supported by financial contribution from Health Canada. So without that contribution, we would not have been able to bring this to you. With me is Dr. Aingaran Sinaraja, and Aingaran is chair of the Dr. Gillian Gilchrist Palliative Care in the Division of Palliative Care at Queen's University and also at Lakeridge Health in Ontario. And joining us today, new face, is Dr. Janice Miyasaki, and Janice is the Zone Department Head, Clinical Neurosciences in Alberta Health Services and in the Department of Medicine at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And then joining us is a face that you've seen before on one or two of the episodes and is Dr. Anna Voke. And Anna is a palliative care consultant in the Edmonton Zone Palliative Care Program in Edmonton. I think you previously saw her when she was at Queen's University in Kingston and I joined the Alberta group. So today's featured articles, as usually happens, covers a spectrum of topics. 
So we're going to start off with looking at an interesting article all about stigmatizing language expressed towards individuals with current or previous opioid use disorder. And Eingeron will be presenting that. There's an article on the risk of suicidal ideation and behavior in individuals with Parkinson's disease, which I think really shines a light on this area that we often don't speak about and we often ignore, and very, very important in terms of the need for palliative care. There's an article on managing opioid-induced constipation in patients with cancer, and specifically naloxagel and its use in that situation. And then to end off with, I will share with you what constitutes quality of life perspectives of adolescents and young adults with advanced cancer. So with that, over to you, Eingeron. Thanks very much. So this article I'm pleased to talk about, and it was actually selected by my colleague here at Queen's, Dr. Matthews, and it was really good to read this article, and it actually highlighted another article where this article actually references from. And so I'll actually talk in the background about the previous article that is actually quite important as well. And so this topic relates to the care of patients with cancer pain and opioid use disorder. And we all have faced this. It is very challenging. There is stigma associated with these patients asking for treatment for their pain. And this prior study from four, three years ago did a matched case control analysis of 40 hospitalizations of patients with opioid use disorder. And they matched it with patients who did not have opioid use disorder. Both groups had active cancer metastatic advanced cancer and had acute cancer pain. That's why they were admitted. Both groups had a median survival of two and a half months. And when they looked at the opioid use and changes that were made during the admission, you can see here clearly that there was a huge difference in how much opioids they ended up getting. So the group with opioid use disorder from home MME to the admission MME there was really no difference, minus three, whereas the non-opioid use had an immediate increase of 37 milligrams. And then when you look at all the way to the discharge, again, the opioid use disorder, there was no change. They came in for acute pain. There was no change in their opioid dosing. Whereas a non-opioid use disorder group that matched cohort had an increase of 55 milligrams. So this study today, we're gonna talk more about, is a follow-up on that study where they looked at the same opioid use disorder group, so the 40 hospitalizations, and they now looked into the chart and did a chart review to see what might have caused this discrepancy. So this is a descriptive qualitative study. They use thematic analysis. The 40 hospitalizations involved 25 patients. So there were some repeat admissions. And they use this framework called the health stigma and discrimination framework, where it is related to health. So it's a focus is on health, it acknowledges some of the intersecting stigmas such as race, gender, and that all could play a role, even though they might not be looked at specifically. They look at both the groups that are impacted and those who might be inadvertently causing the stigma, and that is the healthcare providers. And then it talks about the manifestations of the stigma, such as on the outcomes, access, acceptability of healthcare. So the main messages were there were found four themes on the study. So there were stigma drivers. So they saw evidence of healthcare providers assigning blame and stereotyping. So quotes in the charts. So these are medical charts that talks about drug seekers. It mentions out of proportion to illness. So these are barriers it looks like. And then there were also sometimes the opposite language that might be facilitators to pain management. So sometimes 
a prior history of an overdose was mentioned as an accidental overdose to perhaps that it was not their fault and so we are allowed to give more opioids. Or if the patient was well known to treating providers, that seemed to be a facilitator to giving more opioids. The second theme was around the legal policy and being an advocate. So for example, some attending teams had to wait for psychiatry or pain consultation, so that led to delays to pain management. Some of them actually just switched them immediately to liquid preparations to reduce abuse potential. Sometimes there were positive facilitators where friends and families were advocating for their loved ones to get poor pain management. Multiple calls from mother about their love, the son not getting enough pain management was helpful. But sometimes it was not helpful where family and friends were also wanting more pain meds at discharge and it was looked upon negatively. The third theme was around the impact on outcomes. There was one example where a patient was clearly displaying withdrawal symptoms from methadone, but the physician kept redirecting them and did not want to give them methadone. And they were giving other analgesics. Again, we mentioned the physical evidence and increasing pain meds. And if there is physical evidence of disease that helped us give more opioids, if there was inconsistent pain history, that might lead to decreased pain control attempts. And sometimes this is a US study, it looked like there were actually treatment limiting decisions for pain control. A patient deciding to switch to hospice quality of life focus. So remember in the US, you cannot do both at the same time. And they did it so they can get better pain control, which was not good to see. And then the last theme was again, care by known providers. So if there was a team that actually knew the patient from the outpatient world, it actually helped. And there was actually better continuity from inpatient to outpatient. So why is this article important? It reminded me about the importance that healthcare providers themselves play around the stigma that might be associated with pain management in patients with opioid use disorder, and it can impede access to adequate pain management. And so we have to be very careful about language, I think, in medical records on what and how we describe the situation. Some of the limitations include possible confirmation bias. Again, this was just focused on the opioid use disorder group. There was an independent analysis, though, by an interdisciplinary team they talk about with broad representation and areas of expertise. They did not obviously talk to the healthcare providers directly. We just, they just looked at the charts themselves. The experiences of the patients was not directly uh, explored either. Um, and then even though the framework looks at intersections, they didn't delve into you know, the gender and race and how those might have played an impact. So I'll, I'll stop there and invite the panel for more uh, discussion. Thanks very much, Angran. Do you perhaps have at hand examples of some of what was said? Because I remember when I was reading the paper, there was, for example, one, he was not answering questions appropriately, willfully giving wrong answers versus confusion. And this was a 35-year-old male with metastatic nasopharyngeal cancer. The other one that I thought was interesting was rates pain high. However, I will not increase his pain meds. And this is a 64-year-old man with advanced lymphoma. I don't know if there were any other that really touched you or that resonated with you. Yeah, I mean, some of those I mentioned, I mean, the things, just the small quotes uh, in the interest of time, but but you're right. I mean, there were some that are, that did touch me, but but it also, I think, raises what you already mentioned, that some of these are things we have been taught to be careful about, to reduce the risk of giving opioids for something that opioids might not help. But I have wondered, and in my own practice, you know, I've been taught by, you know, when I was a student and a resident to sort of always give them the benefit of the doubt initially. 
Again, if you don't know them before, I have always tried to increase the opioids to see if there's a benefit, because that's ultimately what it is about. And if there is no benefit, then I can see why you wouldn't want to. And I think they also talk about, again, that if you know the patient from the outpatient world, the continuative care really makes a difference, isn't it? And at least in my area, and in a lot of big centers, sometimes that is, it is impossible, I think, for teams and physicians to sort of continue to provide them inpatient and outpatient. It's just not efficient enough, right? And so how do we find that balance and how do we still talk to each other about the patient's history and the experience? It's a complex issue, right? When I read this paper, I thought to myself, goodness, over the years, I'm sure I've written things in the charts that probably would be classified as stigmatizing. And, and going forward, I've got to think through this a bit more. But I also think I can also think of some examples of where indeed there was not just attempts, but actual diversion of opioids. And, and so I think as healthcare professionals, we've got to, while make sure that we're not stigmatizing, we also can't ignore when that event occurs. I find this really complex. I think this is, for me, was food for thought, but it's finding that balance because there must be a balance. Anyone else? Please go ahead, Janice. Yes. So I've run into two occasions that made me pause. One was a lady with MS who had chronic pain and she kept coming in for delirium. And when I reduced her opioids, she said, this is the best I've ever been. And she went from requiring quite a lot of opioids to just using three Tylenol threes a day. And I wondered if her family was diverting the opioids or using it to manage her behaviorally. I think quite a few years ago, Steve Pasek, who's an expert in this area, would, has written some fantastic papers around this. And many years ago, he was saying the concept of the pseudo-addiction, where it looks like patients are asking for it because of addiction, but it's not. So the most common reason why they would ask for it is because they're having pain. And as Iyengaran was highlighting, you know, we've got to respond to that and treat the pain. But the example you describe and the ones I'm thinking as well, it just gives you a moment of pause, right, to think. And, and I think we need to learn, at least I do, better on how to distinguish it better going forward and to avoid using the language that could be stigmatizing, yet not ignoring the fact that it does happen, like you say, right, uh, as you describe. Good. Thank you. And over to you, Janice. Thank you. And uh, thank you for the editorial board for selecting this submission. So my area of expertise is movement disorders, which comprises Parkinson's disease. And I thought this paper was important because it highlighted the importance of the non-motor symptoms. So we often think of slowness and stiffness and gait problems, but this paper highlights the neuropsychiatric complications of Parkinson's. So in the past, we've always thought that our Parkinson patients have less risk of suicidality because they're very rule-following people who do not want to broach convention. But this study found that there was a 2.3% risk of suicidal behavior compared to 0.78% of non-PD age match controls. 28 studies were included in this analysis reflecting that it is broadly looked at. And suicidal behavior occurred in 1% of patients significantly higher than those with non-neurologic chronic illness or the general population. And so why is this paper important for palliative care teams? Because often palliative care teams wonder, can I have an impact 
on patients with neurologic illness. And this highlights the benefit of the skills of a palliative care team, which is to have challenging conversations, to explore challenging emotions that our patients have, that often neurologists, I'll be quite honest, are not good at exploring. And so often having the fresh eyes to look at a patient and to detect some of the things that we become inured to. So patients have a masked face. They often have apathy as part of their Parkinson's, but we forget to ask whether they are depressed because we become so immune to it. And in fact, standardized screening of people with Parkinson's for depression, just using a simple geriatric depression inventory, resulted in a 36% detection of depression compared to was normally cited in the literature of 20%, and this is going to be published shortly. So the strengths are that this is a meta-analysis of suicidality when we have a bias that this is usually quite low in people with Parkinson's, but the weaknesses are that it didn't explore subgroups. For instance, there is still controversy that exists for people undergoing surgical procedures for Parkinson's and that they have increased risk of suicidality, perhaps due to impulsivity. Also, it's taken over a long period of time where the methods for defining suicidal behavior have really changed. And we have broadened our definition and in some respects been more precise about the definitions. Also, because it is a very broad survey of studies, there are very heterogeneous demographics and geographical variabilities which may have impacted the results. Nonetheless, I think it is an important point for our palliative care teams to understand and to be heightened to when we're talking to people with Parkinson's. Thanks very much. And it's not just for the part of care teams. A lot of folks that join us as well are, are alumni of the LEAP courses across the country. So family physicians, home care nurses, professionals from across different professions and sectors. So we thought this is such a, an important study to showcase. So just again, remind us, Janet, so this was a systematic review and a meta-analysis. And in the systematic review, they identified 28 studies that they included in their analyses. And I think I remember reading like just over 500,000 patients from all these 28 studies, right? Mm. One of the things I enjoyed reading in the paper was the suicidality and that it exists on a spectrum. And heard about it, but it just suddenly, I think I had a aha moment when I read it. Oh, of course, it's a spectrum on the one end ideation, on the other hand, suicidal behavior. They didn't go into the studies, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, about how they define depression in the studies, right? Because I know Anna Angeron, one of the challenges often in patients with advanced diseases is defining what depression is because a lot of the somatic symptoms of depression are sometimes caused by the disease itself. Did they look at how depression is diagnosed in each of those studies? I can't remember seeing that. I don't think so. So they had variable methods, which is another challenge. And Uh so some use the geriatric depression inventory and then do a secondary confirmation by a psychiatrist. 
Others just use a screen, such as the geriatric depression inventory or other depression inventories. So they don't have a specific definition except beyond the DSM. So they often say that they Mm. use the DSM, whatever Mm. edition was current. But I think the importance is that suicidal ideation, which in Canada is often expressed as questions about MAID. So these patients very commonly ask about MAID. And Mm. a lot of it has to do with their loss of identity, the fear of the future, the fear of future suffering. And Mm. many of them say to me, I just want to have that insurance in my pocket. So for for listeners across the world who may not not know what MAID is or M-A-I-D, it's euthanasia, assisted suicide. And so I think that because of the experience in Canada and the Netherlands, that more clinicians will be facing this question as people are asking about it. It's also true that many of our patients, after asking about it and being what I call made curious, don't pursue the made protocol further or even ask the made navigator for further information. They're really wanting information about how it works and also expressing distress over their Mm. diagnosis and their suffering. So I think it's important for us to be key to that because existential distress is very common among people with Parkinson's. And we're so focused on all the Mm. medical aspects and the physical aspects, we often forget to acknowledge the losses that they keep experiencing despite their best efforts. Yeah. And I I also just wanted to add that just looking at, they say that depression is the greatest risk factor for suicidality, as well as looking at sleep disorders, loneliness, hopelessness, and demoralization. And I think, you know, we're in the palliative care world, we're always focused mainly on cancer or patients with cancer. And again, that talks about the stigma, stigmatization language of, you know, um, patients with cancer as opposed to cancer patients. But nonetheless, I think that, you know, we forget about these other issues that people are experiencing. And I, you know, that's where we talk about a team approach and whole person care in terms of the, the palliative approach to care and remembering, I think this is an article that really helps us to realize that we can't forget about these symptoms in people. The whole area around Parkinson's and the impact of Parkinson's on people's lives, uh, end of life was brought home to me actually just a few weeks ago with a family member who was diagnosed very late with Parkinson's because he had advanced dementia and Parkinson had been missed and it complicated the care so much. And I wish I knew that much earlier. I think we would have probably advocated for some different approaches had we known that there was Parkinson's and and the enormous impact it had. And when I read this paper, I thought we may have missed a few things there. So thank you. So over to you, Anna. Thanks. So this is a paper that's an article called One Year Efficacy and Safety of Naloxagol on Symptoms and Quality of Life Related to Opioid-Induced Constipation in Patients with Cancer, a Kayonal Study. And this was done by Kobo Doles and colleagues. And it was an article selected by uh, Dr. Leonie Herks and I. Yeah, so this is about constipation, something we love to talk about, or if we don't love to talk about, we're going to be talking about it anyway with our patients. So it is a common side effect associated with treatment of opioids. And it is something where it's not one of those symptoms that sort of goes away initially with as nausea does or a little bit of drowsiness. It will continue generally throughout the treatment with opioids. And so opioid-induced constipation does affect many patients with pain and cancer. And usual treatments such as laxatives that we use, hygiene and dietary means, may not be effective 
And so we look at this medication called naloxical, which is a perfectly acting new opioid receptor antagonist, which can be indicated for the treatment of opioid-induced constipation. The objective of this study was to analyze long-term efficacy, quality of life, and safety of naloxical in patients with cancer in a real-world setting at 12 months. So what they did was an observational study with 12 months of follow-up with six follow-up visits. So at baseline, and then 15 days, three months, six months, and 12 months from September 2017 to November 2019. And they had 16 investigators, which included medical oncologists, a couple of people from the palliative care unit, and two radiation oncologists in 12 provinces in Spain. And they had a sample of 126 patients who had cancer and confirmed diagnosis of opioid-induced constipation, which they used the Rome 4 criteria. They weren't responsive to laxatives and the traditional means of treatment for the constipation. So patients were asked to complete a diary card and they recorded a number of weekly spontaneous bowel movements, side effects of naloxagol, as well as any use of rescue medications. And in terms of outcomes, they were also meant to complete instruments and questionnaires. And so they looked at the constipation-related quality of life. And so they used patient assessment of constipation quality of life questionnaire. They also looked at constipation symptoms, and they had an instrument for that, as well as global health quality of life. And then they actually just looked at a lot of sort of the, just the demographics qualities of the patients as well, and the effectiveness and side effects of the naloxagol. So the main findings, there were quite a few different findings on this, and it's hard to sort of summarize everything, but the main things that they found were that they showed clinically and statistical significant improvement in the quality of life scores, as well as the symptom scores from baseline in between all the visits. There also was no change in the global health quality of life. So that was maintained from the beginning all the way until the end. And they used different means of measurement. So they looked at the mean number of days per week of spontaneous bowel movements, the stool consistence, which they used the Bristol stool chart, and they showed that it was improved from baseline. In addition, they looked at the response to treatment with naloxicol, and it was more than 70% at all visits. And in terms of side effects, they saw about 28, and most of those were gastrointestinal side effects. And most of them, about 75% of them were mild. So the strengths of this were that it is a prospective analysis over 12 months. Previously, they were saying that they only saw, you know, case studies as well as retrospective studies, and it was in a real world setting. Some of the limitations were that it did not have a control group for comparisons. It was observational, not a randomized controlled trial. So I think they talked about how most people were on 25 milligrams of naloxagol, but only a small number were on 12.5 milligrams. They also focused on patients with cancer and pain. And so that probably did not include people who were taking opioids for dyspnea or other means. And again, just more on focus on cancer patients. And in terms of if you look at the demographical information, it's not quite generalizable. Most of the patients were Caucasian. They were sort of in the middle socioeconomic background or status. Their KPS score, the Karnofsky performance status score was quite high. It was remained in the 70s from the beginning into the end. And I know they talked about intention to treat, but they started off with 126. And then, you know, some people did withdraw, but then a lot of people did die. So they ended up with 29 at the end of the study. Yeah. So I think it's meant for a specific group of population. And so why is this article important? Well, I guess it does add to the existing literature, previously just retrospective small serves studies and case reports. And so this can be sort of a launching pad for future research. It does show that naloxagol can improve quality of life of patients experiencing opioid-induced constipation. 
and treatment of pain by opioid analgesics was not affected as a result. So in that sense is, you know, people do try to reduce the dose of the opioids to see if that will help with their constipation. But all that really does is actually cause more pain and uncontrolled symptoms in the patient. So in this case, they found that if you use naloxicol, you can kind of maintain or the doses of the opioid and maintain pain control. And then most side effects were mild and then naloxicol can be given over long-term for patients with cancer with opioid-induced constipation. So want to open it up for, for discussion or questions. There are a lot of, I guess, findings, little nuggets in there. It's hard to discuss them all, but I, I don't know if any of you had come up with anything as you read the article. Yeah, yeah, no, thanks, Anna. Yeah, you, you're right. It was, I found it a bit difficult to read this article because there were so many that they crammed in to the results. But it also actually, there was a point in there where I was like, I, it seemed to conflict in terms of the findings where you mentioned the 29 at the end, but there was also a section where they had the response to naloxidol. And at 12 months, they said there were 98 participants. And I was like, how, I don't understand that conflict. And the second question, and I don't know whether you looked into this is, I, I wasn't sure how they took the naloxagol over the 12 months. And I don't know whether I saw that anywhere where, like, did they just take it for two months, four months? Did they stay on it for 12 months? Do you know? You know, I don't know. There were a lot of little things in there that I was reading and I thought, oh, that's interesting, but there were no more details. So I'm not quite sure. I assume that they would have kept on it because most of the people were on a laxative already. I think most it was polyethylene glycol or macrogol. And so I suspect they continued on with an alloxical, but yeah, there were a lot of things that weren't quite clear. Interesting question. And when I looked at that, I thought, okay, it's one of the criteria for participating in the study was Karnofsky scale. So almost equivalent to PBS of greater than 50%. So I think that the attrition rate was during the actual study was relatively low. These are people still pretty active. And I think that the 29 refers to maybe at the very end beyond the study, if they were monitoring the patients beyond the study. I don't know. I just thought, okay, this is people are still quite active, more than 50% Karnofsky. There was one thing that the authors wrote that I will contest, and I'm just wondering what my colleagues on the panel think about. So what they wrote was laxatives have limited efficacy in opioid-induced constipation, and that was in the introduction section. And my first reaction was, hmm, I think that's a bit of a strong statement because my clinical experience is, and some studies show that actually uh, a lot of people, you can control constipation with the laxatives. It's a matter of the dose. I don't know what you thought about that. And I'm just going to jump in because there are three Q&A questions as well that ah. we want to address. And this, your question, your question, does it directly ask a similar question in the Q&A from a hospice clinician who said, constipation is definitely an issue there but they have never heard of this drug, which suggests that in Canada, perhaps we don't actually rely on this drug a lot. And so when do we use this in Canada? And it's a good question that they're asking. Just to jump in there, I do think that, I mean, that's why we use it, right? Laxatives do work. People don't need to go to naloxicol or, you know, some people will use methyl naltrexone, which, I mean, I don't use nalo naloxicol. I know it's there available, but I don't use it. But yeah, I think, Jose, to your point, and then also to this, this point too, is that um, it's not first line and it is likely quite expensive as well. I don't know the details, but I'm sure someone on the panel can answer the cost if, if that's a question. I don't know the cost of the drug, but I do find that sometimes in the effort to find a niche, people make statements that perhaps mm -hmm. are overreaching in terms of laxatives don't work for opioid-induced constipation. I'm like, well, but that's what we rely on. 
we have never used naloxone in our clinic ever. <laughs> so. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head <laughs> over there, Jadison. There's a question here about can it be used in non-cancer context? So I think given just what we've seen that this is a cancer population, I would say I'm not going to endorse that because I'm not aware of any study where it looks at non-cancer population. So no. And, and it reminds me of methyl naltrexone. So methyl naltrexone has been around for a few years in Canada. And I remember there were a few patients over the years not many that really were not responding to high doses of laxatives and combination of laxatives. And we did find some effect with I think subcutaneous methyl naltrexone, where some studies showed there's about a 50% response uh, and pretty quick. And for that drug, it was very clear, do not use it in non-cancer patients. And you can only use it in patients with opioid-induced constipation. So I don't know whether that also applies to this one, but good questions and we need to look further into it. The last comment I would make before we move on is that this reminded me to go look at the small print at the end of the study. And so this study was sponsored by a pharmaceutical company and two of the authors are employees of the pharmaceutical company. So um, we do. I think Janice, you perhaps hit the nail on the head with the trying to find a niche market for this, isn't it? Nonetheless, we thought we'd feature this because yeah, it's a problem that I think Anna described very well. It's something that's very common. We see a lot in, in the part of care. It's been a long time since we've seen sort of new approaches around it. So we thought it would be an opportunity to shine a light on this issue. Good. So the next one then I've been asked to present, and it was an article that was selected by our colleague Emma Pohl. It was published in the journal of the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. And it was published towards the end of 2023. The principal author is Henkel J and then colleagues, and it's entitled, What Constitutes Quality of Life? Perspectives of Adolescents and Young Adults with Advanced Cancer. And so the background that the authors write in this article is that adolescents and young adults with cancer have unique needs and priorities, and that these diseases cause great disruption in their lives and in their age-appropriate development. Previous studies have found that for them, quality of life is an important issue as well as older adults. And the authors note that not much is known about what constitutes and contributes to quality of life for these patients. They also make the case that quality of life is a dynamic and a subjective determination. The study objective was to explore what contributes to quality of life for adolescents and young adults with advanced cancer and to identify domains of quality of life in this population. And this was a secondary analysis. So they had done a previous study, previously collected qualitative data that had been collected using semi-structured interviews, where they'd interviewed adolescents and young adults with cancer, as well as their caregivers, often family and also healthcare providers. And those included doctors and nurses looking after these patients. And that earlier study was to identify patient-centered domains and indicators to allow them to improve the care that these patients received. They used a purpose of sampling approach so that they could get a mixture of age and racial ethnic representation. The study, by the way, was carried out at three tertiary cancer centers in the United States, and they included uh, English and Spanish-speaking participants. Interestingly, the age was 12 to 39. So when I first saw the title, I thought I'm going to be looking at 10 to maybe 20, 24, 25, but it did go up to 39. 
So the results, there were 23 patients, 28 caregivers and 29 healthcare providers were included in the analysis. Of these, 70% of the patients who participated in the study were aged 25 to 39, and only 22% were aged 12 to 24. But that was still enough to give them some insights. So four domains of quality of life were identified, and these were present in each of these age groups. So in the younger age group, the age group of 12 to 18, 20, and the other age group, which was, I think, 25 to 39. And these four domains were psychosocial and physical well-being, dignity, normalcy, and personal and family relationships. And so within psychosocial and physical well-being, for example, they described interconnectedness of the domains of the psychosocial domain and the physical domain where difficulties or problems in the physical domain, such as pain, would affect in some cases really severely the psychological status of these persons. And this was present across most of the age groups. Patients in the mid-20 to 30s tended to more frequently mention psychosocial needs and mental health needs than the younger folks, although it was also mentioned in the younger folks. So in the dignity domain, they looked at things like maintaining one's sense of self-respect and independence with ADLs as much as possible, and then preserving a family uh, roles and relying more and more on parents. And this included the older groups so that into the late 20s, 30s, some of them in the advanced stage of the disease had to move back in to be cared for by parents. And normalcy was something across the different age groups. They really valued experiences of normal life and also establishing short and long-term goals. There were two themes that emerged across the domains, the importance of having a voice in the care plan and then quality of life dynamic and changes over time. So that was common theme across those age groups. Limitations, this was a secondary analysis. So in the original study, they did not specifically ask participants, what do you experience quality of life is and what contributes to quality of life? So this was a secondary analysis. Again, the population was tertiary care centers, and it was an older population. So I would call this, you know, uh, more young adults. Why did we choose this article? Because young adults, adolescents, young adults is a topic, again, that we often don't address and that we really felt we needed to highlight. So with that, comments, thoughts? A question came up for me, and I was curious about the panel's um, response. And is, do we need AYA experts? palliative care experts, like can any palliative care person, because there are some nuances, isn't there, for AYA that, that we need to be mindful of. I was struck by the normalcy theme, which I don't normally hear in the older population, but I can see why it would be very important for the younger population. And so, and I know there are national researchers who are AYA experts as well. And, and, and on the oncology side, there are AYA specific oncologists. And so, I'm curious, how does that work for part of care? I'll just say, though, that I think normalcy is an issue even for older people. It is yeah. interesting how many times people say to me, I stand out. I don't want to be with my friends anymore because I can't keep up with the conversation or mm. I can't golf the way I used to. And and so normalcy, I think mm. it it's just that it, it evolves and the definition changes. And so I, I think that we all want to be normal, right? Like nobody wants to be an interesting case. So I think it's uh, particularly poignant for the adolescents because normal is going to be defined by their peer group so strongly. 
So my personal feeling is that it is something we all hope for and that illness takes away from us. Yeah. I just wonder, just because there's such an age range as well, right? And I think this paper focuses on a specific age range, but you know, people are at different seasons of their life. And even in that group, the, the ages, you know, you're either looking at a younger person who is looking at forward to their future and then other young people who have children who they're looking towards what's going to happen when I leave and my children are left, you know, so there's a different focus, I think, than, you know, your 80, 90 year olds. It's just, and, and just as, as you say, like really dynamic things are changing throughout. So what is normal at one season of life may not be, you know, I don't know. I think it's challenging and we certainly need to be a little bit more. Well, I do anyway, I shouldn't speak to everyone else, but more educated on these topics and figure out different tips and, and tools to help support these people. And what you just said reminds me of about a week ago, I was listening to someone here in Spain, Marina Martinez. She's a psychologist caring for patients with advanced illnesses. And she was talking about these decades of life and the cycle. So, and she's saying, you know, when you, in your twenties, you're busy getting ready for your career. You've got your dreams, you're setting up for your dreams. You're getting your studies done. You're looking at work. And in your 30s, you've got the family and it's the family part of the cycle. And in the 40s, you're now establishing yourselves more. You're established at work, et cetera, et cetera. When you get to your 60s, then you're preparing for retirement. And when you say that, that's so true and how it affects these different ages. Illness affects us in, I think, all ages in, in, in similar ways, but also in different ways in terms of what stage of life uh, you're at. So thank you. And I think just a previous question that Angeron asked about pediatric, I mean, we do know that in Canada, for example, there's a whole subspecialty around palliative care with children and with adolescents. And I think it is warranted. I, I think it is needed because I think, as you said, Angeron, it's so, it's so nuanced and there's so many aspects of it that I, for example, as a palliative care physician with adults, I wouldn't know what to do with children. And so thank goodness there's colleagues of ours who have specialized in that field. But I'm also aware in some communities where colleagues don't have the luxury of having someone, a pediatric palliative care clinician, nurse, and they have to do it. I really take my hat off to them. And I think also the, as you say, the familial interactions are so complex for the pediatric population and adolescents, as well as the young adults. And I think that's a different nuance to also navigate because we have to look after the families, not just the patient in front of us. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Janice, Anna. Thank you for joining Angara and I on this. And thank you for being part of this and sharing your thoughts, your insights. We thank everyone for joining us. And here are the honorable mentions. So there's a fascinating paper around switching to intravenous methadone. Now we do know that intravenous methadone, parenteral methadone is not available in Canada. It is available in Europe, and Sebastiano Mercadanti and his team in Italy have published this retrospective study looking at patients that were switched to intravenous methadone. Very interesting, and I think this is a paper that's of interest to palliative care specialists. I don't think that it would probably be very relevant to those of us who are in primary care or the other specialty areas, but very interesting. Uh, then there is a fascinating paper on, again, we're back to Parkinson's disease, and in this uh, paper understanding the mechanisms of pain and the classification system of pain from the context of Parkinson's. And it's interesting because in that paper, they talk about these uh, a classification that they're now moving towards one, which I think in palliative care, we're more acquainted with, and that is the neuropathic pain, the nociceptive pain, and classifying it according to that. So I found that interesting. 
And then last but not least is a paper, a case study uh, around seizures in palliative medicine and the use of, and I know I'm going to massacre this name, so I may need to turn to Angeron to help me, but Rivericetum. Janice, over to you again one more time, please. Rivericetum. Thank you. So there's the honorable mentions, and I want to thank all the observers, I'll call them our faculty across the country that are monitoring the journals. Thanks for a fantastic job. Thank you for submitting so many articles. And with that, thanks everyone. And thank you for joining us again for this, what was the 11th episode. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm James O'Hearn, and I hope you found it both enjoyable and informative. If you'd like to learn more about the Journal Watch program or our other palliative care ECHO project activities, feel free to email us at echo at pallium.ca. That's echo at P-A-L-L-I-U-M dot C-A. Or visit our website at www.echopalliative.com. The music for this episode is Dazed by Airtone. Copyright 2012, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 license. You can find Airtone's music at dig.ccmixter.org. Today's episode was produced by Diana Vince. See you soon.